right, good evening. And let's turn to Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5. Let us return to the Lord. Let us return to the Lord is the title of our message today. And um, we'll, we'll get as far, as far as we can tonight, uh, knowing that we have to cover a couple of chapters, but they're short chapters. Hosea is talking to the northern kingdom, otherwise known as Ephraim. There's going to be a change in the vocabulary of Hosea. He's going to deal with Israel. That's the main audience that he has. But he's going to use now the word for Ephraim, which becomes a name of one of the tribes in Israel, but it's going to become the name correlated to the northern kingdom. Ephraim went into apostasy. Ephraim went into idolatry. Uh, Ephraim was one of the first tribes that led Israel into idolatry as well as Dan. So now they take on the name of the northern kingdom, Ephraim, okay? And so now when we see the word Ephraim is related to the northern kingdom. Remember, as we listen to Hosea, we listen in stereo, both Old and New Testament. Very important to understand, not just to listen to one side of the headset, but to listen to both. And we have seen the pain of infidelity with Hosea. His wife had gone into serial adultery which was prostitution. She was a, uh, an immoral woman, and she went this way uh, after her marriage with Hosea. But the Bible says Hosea was playing a role, was acting a role uh, as if he was the Lord, because the same pain that Hosea felt is the same pain that God has for his people when they go astray. God looks at when we go astray, he looks at it as if we're committing spiritual adultery. We're with another person other than our spouse. And it's one thing to remember when you listen to Hosea and you read Hosea, it's the passion of God. It's the, the pain of a, of a husband that has lost his wife. It's the brokenheartedness of a father who has lost his children to the world. Uh, we'll see in, a, in another couple of chapters where actually... God says, how can I give you up, Hosea? I mean, Ephraim, how can I give you up, Ephraim? You're like my son. It, it, it begins to talk about Ephraim as if it was his son. So it's like a brokenhearted father. But it's mainly the pain that God feels. And when we look at the prophets, when we look at the prophets, and we're going to see in a moment that part of Israel's response to their sin was to obtain more power, was to try to obtain more power and protection from other nations in the midst of their sin. It's a big, big problem, even to Israel today. In the midst of the sin, they look to other nations for protection. Israel today looks to other nations for protection instead of trusting in God. God had a special relationship with Israel that God told Israel, look, when you get into the land, I'm going to protect you. I'll be your shield, just like he told Abraham. I will be your protector. You don't need to go to Egypt. You don't need to go to Assyria for help. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, says Isaiah. But Israel does that. And in the age in which we live in, this is a, a, it goes right against the climate of our day. Protection, security. Where do we look for that? Well, a big temptation in the world of Hosea was to look to other nations. A big temptation for us is to look to military powers, to look for protection, is to look for things that are not of the Lord. And of course, we see the infidelity of Israel. I look at it like this. Shameless bride who placed a harlot under her wedding canopy. Israel married God at Sinai. 
under the cloud, right? That's why Jews today still get married under the chuppah. It was a cloud. It was the glory of God where God brought Israel close to himself and married her at Mount Sinai. That was their wedding day. But you know what happened that day? As Moses went up the mountain, as he was down, down the mountain, the people were playing, uh, were playing the harlot. They were playing uh, with the God. They were playing with the God called Baal, uh, or in a sense was the golden calf, eventually became Baal, but they called the golden calf Yahweh. They thought it was God. And so they had this weird, morbid idea that uh, they were calling the right God, but worshiping him in a totally different way than what he prescribed in his word. And so it wasn't even done. The wedding wasn't even done when she was already playing the harlot. Israel was playing the harlot with another God. And God was brokenhearted about it. And he talks about it, especially in, in, uh, in Hosea, the corruption, the corruption of the leadership made this happen much faster. Uh, the failure of the kings, all the kings of Israel, with partly exception of Jehu, which we talked about at the first study uh, in Hosea, with maybe his partial exception, all the kings of Israel were failures. Um, the priest failed. The priest failed. And uh, remember, this is relating to the church, not our government. So Hosea is talking to their government, their leadership, their priest. The church doesn't have that kind of government anymore. It's, uh, well, never. It never did. The church never had a government like that. Therefore, the implications of Hosea applies to the church in the New Testament, believers today. So when we see failed leadership, don't say Trump or Flynn or the White House. That may apply in general terms, but it first has to be dealt with with the leadership of the church in general, pastors and leaders and elders. Uh, but the people had an issue. Look at verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Hear, priest, hear, O priest, give heed to the house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread about in Tabor, and the revolters have gone into deep depravity. But I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Later on, maybe a couple of chapters later, we're going to talk about the failure of the prophets. Because the prophets... There were false prophets in Israel, and they led the, the, I was say the church. Yes, there are false prophets in the church, and they lead the church astray. But there were false prophets in Israel who were telling them, everything's okay. Nothing bad's going to happen. God is very well pleased with you. That's a sign of a false prophet where they pat people on the back and make them feel like nothing's wrong with them. Everything's going all right. And that is the number one sign of a false prophet. Not that just get things wrong. That's... Besides the point, they might even get things right, says Deuteronomy 13. They might even get things right. But if they point you to another God and tell you there's no judgment when you're in blatant sin and immorality, that's a false prophet. A true prophet, even if it hurts, will tell you the truth. Even if it's something you don't want to hear. Certainly, Hosea was not very popular. Because as they looked at Hosea's life and marriage, they said, man, you have a screwed up marriage. Man, you have a screwed up children. And Hosea can turn around and said, well, they're pictures of you. You have a bad relationship with your God, and you are not legitimate children of God. And they would have been very angry at him during that time. 
But it says that the priest and the king and the house of Israel, all of them were going to be judged by God. Judgment applies to you, he says, because nothing is hidden from God. They played the harlot and Israel has defiled itself. Remember in Revelation where it says Jesus walks in the midst of the church, in the midst of the candlesticks? He knows. He says, I know your works. He goes through all the churches and says, I know, I know, I know. God knows. The most critical part about all this is I believe Jesus walks through this church and he knows. He knows the condition of everyone's hearts. He knows our needs. He knows the reality of where we're headed, what we're doing, how we're doing it. And in the midst of it, he gives us counsel. In the midst of it, he gives his words of encouragement or words of correction. But are we listening? But are we listening? Uh, are we praying? Are we seeking him? Or has it just become just a religious show where we just show up and kind of do our thing and go home and nothing else happens in our lives? It doesn't affect us at all. And that's what was happening at the time of Hosea. Now, he mentions a couple of places. Mizpah. Um, their deeds will not, um, I'm sorry, uh, verse 4. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God for the spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against them, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumble with them, and they will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them, and they have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them in their land. I wonder what Hosea will be telling the church today that he hasn't told Israel in the past. Um, even though they had great places of victory, great places of, um, uh, where they actually triumph in the past in Israel, now they are the places of idolatry, like Bethel. Bethel was a great place where uh, the place, the house of God, now had become the house of idols. And other places have become so defiled, God had nothing to do with them. God wanted nothing to do with them. Look what verse 5 says. Moreover, the pride of Israel, the pride of Israel testifies against them. The pride of Israel testifies against them. Now, this, is, this is the shame of what has happened. The pride of Israel has testified against them. And Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. It's their pride. It's their pride had done this. They have, uh, they have fallen into such uh, spiritual pride that they, would, um, they wouldn't turn back to the Lord. Now, in verse, um, in verse 1, if you go back to verse 1, there is Mitzvah. There's a place called Mitzvah, and then a place called Mount Tabor. And there were places where Israel had great victories during that time. Mitzvah was the place where Samuel encouraged them to take the ark of the Lord and to follow God. It had been a, uh, in, in Old Testament terms, you would say it was a place of great spiritual victory. Uh, Tabor, Mount Tabor, Judges 5, the place where Barak and Deborah had defeated uh, the enemies of Israel in Jael, finally brought the victory, killing the wicked general. But in that place of great victory was now a place of great wickedness. Do you see why Hosea brings this up? Because he's trying to remind them, look, you had great victories there. You had great spiritual revivals at your time. Now, 
to become a place of idolatry. And the same thing could be said of the church. Uh, times of great spiritual revival, especially in America, especially in England, great places of revival and people back to God now have become defiled. Now have become so defiled that uh, I think it's in um, verse 2. It says, they have gone into depravity. I will chastise them. They have played the harlot. Uh, they do not know the Lord. They have stumbled in verse 5. All this to show us that this place is where the, the church or, or Israel had great victory, had become a place of great idolatry. In fact, in such a way that they have gone into such depravity that it was time for judgment now. God had given them a chance, given them a chance to repent, and he was continuing to deal with them and bear with them. Look what it says in, um, uh, in verse 6. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find them. Now, what would they take their flocks and herds for? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Flocks and herds for their sacrifices. To seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. Now, this is a time of corruption of worship. We'll see in a moment. But the people were demanding promiscuity. We can be unfaithful to God. We do our sacrifices, but it doesn't mean anything. They were bringing the herds, were bringing the sacrifices as means of worshiping God. But they weren't, they weren't finding the Lord. Um, he has withdrawn himself from them, meaning that there was a time where God would have accepted their offerings. But now it was too late. God withdrew himself from them. And it's a very um, important verse to remember that uh, God is not a God to be trifled with. He's not a God that we can say, well, God's always going to be there for me. Don't, you know, I, I met people like that. They just, well, you know, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to repent. I don't wanna... One day, uh, God's going to be there. And you know, I'll come back to God. Well, that was the attitude of Israel. And it says that they tried to do that, and God had withdrew himself from them. He won't be there all the time, it says. Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call, on him, call upon him while he's near. There's coming a time, of course, in the eschatological things, in the end time, there's coming a time where it is going to be like that, where the door will shut, where sin will become so rampant and so wicked that God will even remove himself as the Holy Spirit is, is removed or set aside for a time uh, while the church, well, when the church will be raptured and the Holy Spirit is set aside, just temporarily set aside so all the wickedness can come into, come into play. Uh, there, it wasn't true worship of God at the time. There was infidelity. But look what it says. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord. Uh, th that idea of treacherously has to do uh, with uh, that even though they were committed to God, they were still doing the fertility cults. They were still doing uh, the Baal thing. They were still doing the Astra thing. They were still part of this sexual promiscuity because in order to worship the gods, you had to engage in temple prostitution and cult prostitution to the degree that even Israel was headlong going into that. And it says that the result of it was this, uh, verse 7, for they have born illegitimate children. There was a fruit of this happening. The fruit was illegitimate children. Not just illegitimate in a sense of there's a bunch of kids without parents in a sense, but 
their, their spirituality was nowhere to be found. Their kids had no spirituality. Um, what a shame would it be, right, if we came to know the Lord and did not raise our kids, our children in that way, and the, our kids grow up and they don't even know who God is. They have no idea who the Lord is. Now, of course, they have their choice to make. They have their decisions to be made. But here is the implication. They never taught him about the Lord. They taught him about other things. And the children grew up, and they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't really have true spiritual parents. And they go on to the world, and they have illegitimate children, it says. And it says, the new moon will devour them in their land. Now, the new moons had to do with festivals, monthly festivals. Those monthly festivals uh, will be removed from them because of their sin, and God will describe to them judgment. Remember, one thing, we can look ahead a little bit today and say, What's going to happen to this generation? This generation did not repent. Hosea's generation did not repent. 722 B.C. came, just as God said it would, and Assyria came and wiped them out. To the degree that they never came back to the land. Judah came back to the land. But Israel was, the northern kingdom never existed again. But God, remember, made those promises. One day I will bring you back. And Hosea looked ahead into the future and said, Israel will return. And that's what we see in our world today. Israel did return. They're in the land. But through this moment in time, they're still in a controversy with God. They're still among the nations. And God's still dealing with them, even though in their wickedness and sin. Now, he's going to go into some, some geography here. It's important to remember this. Blow the horn in Gebeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Verse 8, sound the alarm of Beth Haven. Behind you, Benjamin, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke among the tribes of Israel. I will declare what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. Oh, on them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to follow man's precepts or man's commands. Now, geography is interesting here. Those uh, three cities that is mentioned, Gebeah, Ramah, and Beth Haven, which, by the way, is just simply Bethel, but uh, the Beth Haven means the house of idols, so it was a, sort, of a, um, uh, a, a, sort of a nickname that Bethel got. The house of God became the house of idols or the house of wickedness. But what you see is they were so close they were so close to the kingdom of Judah. They were so close to the kingdom of Judah, meaning that the cities were actually on the border were influencing Judah. The places of idolatry were actually creeping into Judah. And by the way, Judah eventually fell. Judah eventually fell. So even though God told Judah not to follow the ways of Israel, eventually it did. And it says that the princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. And it's interesting to know that in history, when all this mess was going on in Israel and there was no leadership, uh, it says that Judah tried to expand its borders. One of the kings, I think it was Ahaz, tried to expand its borders. And God was not, God was not very pleased with Ahaz. Because remember, the borders and the boundaries were set by God. They were not allowed to move boundaries. Remember what it says in, um, in the Torah, I believe it's uh, uh, Deuteronomy, that is cursed is that man that tries to move a border, try to move its land, and you go, oh, it's about land, you know, grabbing. But it had more to do with the allotment 
and it had to do with the role that they had to play. They were not allowed to go beyond their role, their allotment that God gave them. And so if a, uh, if a, um, a tribe was not very happy with the boundaries that they got, they, oh, I wanted more land. Look at Dan or look at uh, Simeon or look at all these other. They have more land. God expected them to be content in what they gave them. They weren't allowed to say, well, you know, they're wicked, so I get to take more of their land. God was not very pleased with them. And just like us today, the, the allotment of our lives, God has given us. The order and the boundaries of our ministry or the boundaries of our calling and service to the Lord are given by the Lord. We do certain things. doesn't mean we're not less believers or we're second-class citizens. We're simply God has given us certain things to do. And then we look at other ministries and go, well, I certainly don't like what that guy's doing, so I'm going to kind of annex that ministry toward my ministry. And the Bible says, now, don't move those boundaries. But Judah did that. Judah went beyond the boundaries, and God was not pleased with them. It was land grabbing. Verse 11, but what was the reason? They walk in the way of man's wisdom. They walk in the way of man's wisdom. Humanism. An early form of humanism had crept into Israel. The idea was that they were now thinking, well, you know, things are not looking good, or things are not, remember, this is a time where it was sort of an expansion time for Israel. Things were actually going really well. Things were actually very, very prosperous in the land. Uh, Jeroboam II had expanded because they thought Assyria wasn't coming for them. And they believed that, hey, things are going great. There's great uh, affluence in our society. God must be pleased with us, human wisdom. And they stopped. I mean, they did, did not stop in their idolatry and immorality. They thought they were doing just fine because they had, they had money. And that's a big, huge uh, counterfeit in our world when we think that affluence and having things is a sign of God's blessings and approval. Now, it might be. It might be at times. But it could also be a great test, a great test for us. But when we're not living right and things are you know, increasing in our lives and we're being financially blessed, we would say, it's not because God is pleased with us. And we make that assumption. Well, I have more money. God must be okay with me. The test is always our behavior. Our test is always our behavior. How are we dealing with the Word of God? How are we dealing with our own walk with the Lord? Even if we had a million dollars and we're not walk with the Lord, it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. And that's a real test because we actually, as humans, we think of in human wisdom, we go, hey, what are you talking about? I'm being blessed by the Lord. It might not be God. And if it is, it's a big test. Human psychology and humanism has replaced, in the churches, has replaced true teaching, true doctrine of the Word of God. And you have human intellect, and you have leaning on our own understanding. Now, Proverbs says, don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, trust in the Lord. Trust in God, and He will direct your ways. Now, in verse 13, it says, when Ephraim saw his sickness... And Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and said to King Jerob that he's uh, and sent to King Jerob, but he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Even I 
will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be no one to deliver them. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. One thing to know, and we'll probably just do chapter 5 tonight. Um, I always have great ambition to finish two chapters today. I have not been able to do it. Uh, either that or we don't do prophecy yet, which is always important to do. But one thing we have to remember this, there was an idolatry of power within Israel. Verse 13. Even though they saw his sickness, Judah and his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria. They went to get King Jerob, a very powerful Assyrian king. Now remember, it's good to know geography here and to know the times. There were two major powers at the time of Israel, Egypt in the south, Assyria in the north. And those major powers were always in conflict with each other. And guess who was in the middle? Israel and Judah. Now, we're told in Isaiah, Judah went to Egypt. Wrong thing to do. Israel, it says here, went to Assyria. Now, you would say, well, what's the problem with that? They just needed some help. Well, first of all, the Bible tells us, and the psalmist tells us, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we need to trust in the name of our Lord. Very important to remember. For us, as believers, New Testament believers, it's very important that we don't get deceived by the idolatry of power or affluence or security. In our world, we want that. We desire that. It's part of our nature to seek after affluence, security, Power, but when you seek after power, you have to remember this. It, it can come from somewhere else rather than God. Now, it says in verse 13, they went to King Jerob, Assyria, and he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. The king of, of uh, Assyria uh, was visited by the king of Israel. Now, in 2 Kings, we're told this. Menahem was the king of Israel, and he came to power by murder. He was a terrible king. And he mutilated pregnant women, and he mutilated many Jewish, many, many uh, of the people of Israel, and he taxed them tremendously. And he took that money, and he went up to Assyria and says, protect us. We need your help. And Menahem went to the king of Assyria. Now, what was wrong with it was this. When you went to the king of Assyria... He was a reflection of their God. He was a reflection of their God. Their God was named Asher. Their God was named Asher. And so, and actually the city was named Asher too, named after the, the God. So when you went to the king, you literally went to the reflection of their deity. And the kings of Assyria were in charge to uh, sort of send out, to disseminate their religion throughout the known world. So when the king of Israel, who, remember, the king is supposed to have this close fellowship with God. Don't think of a king like a president, like just a judicial guy who, you know, he just takes care of the practical means. No, he's to have a personal relationship with God. He's supposed to be influenced by the Holy Spirit. He's supposed to walk in the ways of David. He's supposed to have the heart of David, the heart for God, and intimacy and love and affection to God. That's what the king's supposed to be. Look at the good kings, Hezekiah, Josiah, David. They had this personal relationship with God. So he represented the God of Israel. 
the Assyrian represented the god of Assyria, Asher. And so he was a reflection of their god. And so the people submitted to their god. You see the point there wasn't just political affiliation. It had a spiritual connotation. They were submitting now to Asher. Now, Assyria was very, very cruel. And we're told in chapter 8 that like a great bird, like an eagle or a vulture, it's translated in different ways, it was going to plunder and it was going to come upon Israel. And they didn't even know it. They had made this deal. Of course, we're told that uh, after Jared, uh, King Jared had passed away, another king of Assyria came and he destroyed Israel. He destroyed Israel. And he even attacked Judah. Remember the story of Sennacherib going into King Hezekiah? So they didn't stop there. They went ahead. And it's, again, the idolatry of power, military might. We want that. We need that. We need the covering of whoever. In this case, they needed the covering of Assyria. It says, verse 14, I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. There was no escape. See, the judgment of God was coming to that nation. There was no escape. And I will be like a lion to them, and I will tear them to pieces and go away, and I will carry away, and there will be none to deliver them. See, it's one thing when God gives you over to your enemies. At least God can rescue you. If you repent and trust in Him, you can, God can rescue you. It's another thing when God, when you're in the hands of God now, and He's your enemy. Who's going to rescue you now? Nobody. You see, it's a terrifying thing, the book of Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of a living God. If God gives you to your enemies, at least God can deliver you if you turn. But who's going to deliver you from God? The Assyrians couldn't. The Egyptians couldn't. And it says in verse 15, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Next week, we will talk about one of the most comforting, amazing verses in the whole Old Testament, probably the whole Bible. I'll read it because there's no chapter division in chapter 5 and 6. It says, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us. Remember he says he was going to be like a lion. He was going to judge them. But this is what God expects his people to say. When they come into judgment, when God's judgment falls on them, God expects his people to repent, to turn. And you can't have a return. Uh, you can't have a return without turning to God, right? That, that's pretty simple, right, to remember? You can return to God unless you turn to God. You can return unless you turn. I know that sounds overly simplistic, but it's biblically true. You can return unless you turn. God expects his people to turn and desires his people to turn. He says, he has wounded. He will heal us. He has wounded, but he will heal us. He will bandage us up. It is quite interesting because verse 15 of chapter 5, it says that God will hold his mercy until they seek his face. He says, I'll return to my place until they acknowledge their sin. It's like if God puts them on pause for, for a moment. You know, like your old tape deck. You just put it on pause. Things are spinning, but there's nothing playing, nothing moving. It's just simply God puts him on pause. And he holds back his mercy until they seek him. 
when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he pronounced this on them. He says, you will not see me until you say or you proclaim with the truth, with the real heart of truth, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, they have said it on the way to Jerusalem. The crowds were shouting, but they didn't say it with the true knowledge of God. They didn't say it with the true understanding that he was the Messiah. But now God says in verse 15 that he will hold back until they acknowledge their sin, and in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. That's coming to the house of Israel. That's coming in the book of Zechariah when they will look upon him whom they have pierced. In the meantime, Israel's like a, a wandering people. Remember the derogatory term, the wandering Jew. But there are people without a, an identity. They don't know if they're secular or religious. They don't know who they are. They don't know if they need to be atheists or following God. And, and some of them are both. And some of them do, in the land, they're both. And God is waiting. Many of them have turned to Christ. Many of them are turning to the Messiah, praise the Lord. But in their affliction, there's coming an affliction against the Jewish people, a tremendous affliction, whom God does not want them to go through. But they have acknowledged everybody except Jesus to be their Messiah. They had a list. There's a list of false messiahs that they have listened to. And none of them have been Jesus. They've been duped by every single political leader. They've been given into the hands of their enemies. And yet they have not called on the Lord. They look to the U.S., to Russia. They look to all these Western powers to help them in their trouble. And nothing happens. Because yet they have not acknowledged their sin. That's all Jesus wanted them to do. Just acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge and repent and turn to me. That's what chapter 6 follows chapter 5. Return to me, says the Lord. Return to me, and it says, He will revive us, verse 2, and He will raise us up, that we may live before Him. So a couple of things to remember, just to finish off. Number one, give you four things. Leave you four things to remember. So if you now pay attention, leave four things. Number one, nothing's hidden from God. Chapter 5 teaches that. Nothing is hidden from God. Verse 3 tells us. There's no secret sin between you and God. Everything is open. Everything is open. Everything is available for him to see. Number two, sin is serious. Sin is serious. There is no such thing as just a little sin. Sin is very serious. Uh, and, and the Bible calls it the spirit of harlotry or prostitution. It's like a woman setting her affection on another person other than their husband other than her husband. It's to love God. We're to love God with such a deep relationship, but we fail to do that, and we set our affections on something else or someone else. And because human wisdom comes into play, we justify it, and we don't turn to the Lord. We just keep doing our sin. Well, this must be okay. This must be something. It's good, right? It's something good coming out of it. Number three, there are different sorts of judgments. Uh, you had Assyria invading them eventually. You had um, the grieving of God. We can grieve God. And by grieving him, we're told in the New Testament, we can quench the spirit. And he can separate himself from us. 
He can separate himself from us. So there's different types of judgment. One, Assyria can come in and judge us. That's what Israel would have said. Or God can depart from us. Now, I don't know which one's worse and which one's bad, but the second one sounds really bad. Where God departs from our midst. Remember Jesus? We find him in the book of Revelation in chapter 3, outside of the church, trying to get in, calling a church to repent and follow him because he's been ousted. He was outside the church, right? Where Jesus withdraws his presence from the midst of them. And we certainly seen that in the Old Testament. Number four, we're told what not to do. We're told what not to do. Pride. Take down our pride. It says the pride of Israel kept them from really acknowledging their sin. Number two, they went to Syria. They went to Assyria. Uh, the issue was not that they lacked power. They had no relationship with God. And God was trying to keep them from that. But instead of repenting and getting right with God, they went to Assyria. I lied. It's not four. It's five things. The last one, God has a way of forgiveness. God has a way of forgiveness. So even though nothing's hidden from God, even though sin is serious, even though there's different sources of judgment, even though we're told what not to do, at the end, God has a way back. If you choose to go back, many people don't. And see, the, the, road, the road back is this. Sin is crazy and illogical. If you really, I've sat down and looked at my own life and I go, what in the world? Why would I do that? It's, uh, think of this, backsliding is madness. Backsliding is total madness. Why would you want to go away from someone who really loves you and really has the best interest for you, right? Why would you want to go against the one who can protect you, restore you, save you? Why would you want to leave? But in our own sinfulness, we have this craving for sin and immorality, and when we do enter that, we justify it because of our pride and sin. And, and those sins keep us from returning to God. But God in his mercy knows the implications and will allow us to reap what we sow, to suffer the consequences to our sin. But in it, he will allow us a way back. A way back. If we repent. That's it. It sounds so simple, but repentance is like the hinge. It's the hinge of it all. It goes one way or the other. We fail to repent, we'll continue to suffer our afflictions. If we turn, it says Isaiah, he will heal us. He will revive us. He will restore us. And we'll be in the presence, in his presence, alive in his presence uh, before him. In verse 2 of Hosea chapter 6. In their affliction, they will seek, they will seek me. In my sin and foolishness, I can seek the Lord. So if today you're in your sin and you're in your foolishness, you can seek the Lord. And he grants a way back. All he wants is for you to acknowledge your sin and turn to him. That's all Israel had to do. You ever been reading a book and you go, you get so frustrated with the character? You're reading something and you're like, I can so you just tell her you love her, man. You're reading it and you're like, she's right there, just telling you. And no, no, no. And, and of course, the plot twist and all this stuff, right? But this is a serious thing. This is real life and death. This is heaven and hell. And you see something like this and you go, why wouldn't Israel turn? 
It's so simple. God was like begging them almost with open arms saying, I am here opening up my hands to a stubborn people every day, like a father looking out for the wayward children. And Israel wouldn't come. And every day God will go out in the morning and call out Israel, come back, come back. And Israel will not turn. Why? She was so in love with these other gods and so in love with herself and with her pride that she wouldn't want to turn back. How much do you want to be afflicted? Eventually, sin gets tiresome. It's pleasurable for a season, the Bible says, but in the end will destroy it. But human wisdom will keep you in that road to sin if you think about it. You'll justify it. You'll try to create all kinds of ideas for it, but it'll never work. It'll never, ever work. That's why backsliding is so foolish. That's such a foolish thing to do. There's always a way back, and God wants us back. Return to me, says the Lord. Return to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful reminder of Hosea. Return to me, says the Lord. In another chapter in Hosea, says, Do not, and Joel, uh, do not rend your garments, but tear your heart. Oh Lord, we thank you that you do have a way back for Israel. And in that sense, you have a way back for us. We thank you for who you are, and we praise you in your magnificent, awesome forgiveness that you give us a way back. Please, Lord, soften the hearts of people today. Help them turn to you with all their hearts, Lord. Help them turn from their sin and their wicked ways. And to remember, remember the new covenant. Remember what Jesus has done for them. Lord, I pray that Israel today, in their sin and idolatry and immorality, will remember their Lord and their Savior. And for the church, Lord, for the believers as well, that in their sin, they'll return to the Lord. Nothing's hidden from you, Lord. Help them to remember the sin is serious and that judgment comes in different ways if we fail to return. But Lord, you have a way back for us. Keep us from pride, Lord. Keep us from sin. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.